0: Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickinbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Chucks Neworba. As doctor specialising in eating disorders, Chucks joins us today to discuss his work in eating disorders and to consider eating disorder treatment from the perspective of a doctor. Hello, Chucks.
1: Hey, hey, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Hello, thank you for joining me. I'm so excited. Like I was just saying, to speak to you. Um, how are you doing?
1: Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. Just, yeah, uh, just uh, having a having a good time at work. It's in a kind of busy at the moment. Mm. Um, yeah, but honestly, seriously, thank you for having me on this podcast. I absolutely love it. No, oh. I love that you've had some extraordinary guests.
0: Thank you. The, the yes. likes
1: of Jerome Breen and Keisha Thomas. Amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, and now you. So, you know, we're just topping up that list with more and more amazing people. So the first question I wanted to ask you yeah. was kind of what does it mean to be a doctor specialising in eating disorders? What, what's part of your role?
1: Good question. All right. Okay, so I work (laughs) as a specialty doctor in West London in eating disorders. And just before I get into it, I just want to say that I work as part of quite frankly, an amazing team. Um, Just get that out of the way, because it's so important, you know, as doctors, we don't work in isolation, we don't work as an island, we work in tandem with others. So as a specialty doctor, I it is kind of what it says, doctor in the specialty. And obviously, in this case, is specialty, which is eating disorders. So in short, I'm the second doctor in command. I work um, as the ward doctor with my consultant overseeing the entire operation. So that's my role. So I guess. the Probably the best way to do it is if I start from the top, how a patient comes into the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so, firstly, I take an active role in the screening process. So, I screen with some of the others, screen incoming referrals, um, and again, I work alongside an amazing team um, when it comes to this. And uh, Hannah, to be honest, the numbers have been crazy, absolutely mm-hmm. crazy. I mean, COVID nineteen has made things so much worse. I mean, they were already at a breaking point and at capacity, but but COVID nineteen has just made, has taken it beyond. And I mean, it's been incredibly hard for patients. They've been suffering in the community, waiting desperately and patiently for a bed. Mm. Um, Many are having to be admitted to general medical hospital due to ill health. So so, yeah, we've been really busy as a um, referral screening team. So I I do that. um, And in that process, there's obviously we have to prioritize patient care. So we have to look at you know, whether we have capacity as staff, make sure we have the right staff in. So we have to make sure that, you know, we have all that in place so the patient's care can be delivered optimally. Um, So yeah, we take into a lot of factors. We take into consideration patient's history, physical health status, comorbidities, other things. So yeah, that's part of the screening process. Then I clock them in. When the patient actually comes, starts talking to them, gathering information. Uh, Now this, if you like, adds color to the otherwise, to an otherwise black and white picture. You know, you've mm-hmm. had all their the patient's uh, documentation, you've spoken to the community team, liaise with them. Um, now you get to talk to the patient directly. So this is um, when we start to colour in the picture. And this is a crucial stage because you get to assess the capacity more clearly, understand the patient's mental state, hear their perspectives and motivations, mm-hmm. uh, and so much more. And remember, as part of this process, Uh, we like to uh, talk to the next of kin. We like to talk to friends and family, obviously with the patient's consent. Um, And we do this uh, at admission. We like to do this um, for two main reasons. Firstly, um, there's some questions that we ask the patient, which they probably wouldn't remember, or they probably wouldn't, wouldn't have any knowledge of. For example, when we're asking how they were delivered or the events before, during and after their, de- their birth, these questions are, are, are vital mm-hmm. and can add a lot of information, you know, early growth and development, True. much of, yeah, you know, many of these questions, the patients uh, uh, would not know the finer details about. Mm-hmm. And this is a bit difficult, I guess, when you have patients who their next of kin isn't necessarily their parents becomes a bit more challenging to get that information, but we try our best. Then secondly, as you know, eating disorders have a way of playing games and concealing information. Mm -hmm. So talking, getting collateral histories from friends and family also enables us to um, clarify a few details, if that makes sense, and get a second opinion on things. Then there's other things I do, a full full assessment of the body systems when the patient comes in, you know, the bloods, the ECGs. We have to make sure that we do this daily when they first Mm -hmm. come in, you know, because there's their risk of refeeding syndrome. And you talk about the body's electrolytes being completely thrown all over the place potentially if they are not closely monitored. Um, And then there's other things such as liaising with general medical hospital. For example, if a patient were to come in very unwell, I would then at that stage refer them on to the general medical hospital if things got quite bad you know it could be a scan they require could be heart monitoring i don't know iv fluids iv antibiotics anything that basically us as a tier four specialist eating disorder service cannot carry out right um trying to update the gp in a very concise way because you know gps just don't have any time you know they're always time pressure typically so um if, if I'm able to do this in the concisest way possible, this helps. And throughout the whole process, what I, I, I do is I, I make sure I liaise with the family, family, mm-hmm. friends, um, patient support networks. This is something that's quite a, a cultural in our hospital, which is um, critical. My consultant is fantastic at making sure that there's clear, clarity um, with patients and family because obviously with the patient's consent some patients don't like it if you talk to certain mm-hmm. individuals which is completely their right um, and also I deliver teaching sessions to pa- to the parents or the support networks you know some the, my latest one I delivered a neurology teaching so information on how eating disorders affects the nervous system and yeah our amazing support worker team and lead psychologists they actually lead on these support network meetings. So I, every now and then I just check in with the support team, the support um, networks. So mm-hmm. every week on the timetable for the patients, I talk to them this last um, week, I spoke as in just yesterday, I spoke to them about how eating disorders affects uh, sleep. Uh, the week before that I spoke to them about how eating disorders affects their skin. Um, we're gonna need and... you for
0: another podcast to cover all these
1: things because <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we're trying to tackle the the, um, the questions which patients have most concern about you know hair was another one that's the first one I ever spoke to them about very very concerned about the um the things that happen around their hair and we have very very open honest relaxed very relaxed we keep it very relaxed very practical engaged. you know it's only half an hour but we're able to cover quite quite a lot of information that uh, quite a lot of ground in that time and then there's other things that range from inserting nasogastric tubes if necessary to report writing to utilizing the mental health act so you know this as you can probably tell Hannah there's quite a lot yeah but um <laughs> but as a doctor you know you kind of and throughout medical school they've kind of, that's one thing you learn quite quickly how to prioritize
0: mm.
1: uh, workload so yeah we, we get through it
0: yeah <laughs> it sounds like you have got a lot on your plate I wanted to ask you because you were saying about how um finding that information about early life can be quite important um yeah. for when you have patients so could yeah. you kind of explain to us why that's important and what sort of impact different things at early life might have Ugh, words yeah yeah,
1: yeah you know yeah, what totally, I mean <laughs> totally yeah yeah <laughs> you know I know what you mean uh, okay so a variety <laughs> of things so um pre- Perinatally, so that's during the, 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 um, the process of actually giving birth, um, along with prenatally, you're talking about during the pregnancy, and postnatally. There's all sorts of things that can happen from infections, the mother could get an infection which may affect the baby, the baby's brain, the baby's development. Um, if there's a traumatic birth, you think about, okay, was this birth a vaginal delivery or was it um, C-section? Um, or was it assisted, you know, in any way? Uh, was there lack of oxygen in the process to the baby's brain? And then you talk about postnatally when the baby has actually come out. Did the baby suffer any childhood infections? How was the growth and development? Was there difficulties in walking or difficulties in talking? Um, you're thinking about neuro-develop- neurodevelopmental difficulties, and some, and you're trying to just paint a picture um, from, because someone doesn't just turn up at the age of 30 say with these difficulties, there's been, um, a process. And, um, I guess that's why the team is there to, to, to kind of gather this information. So yeah, all these things can in short, affect the baby's brain, um, and, or they may have, for example, if someone has a neurodevelopmental difficulty. Um, which has very, very strong links with eating disorders, certain cool. eating disorders. Um, you can start to you, you could start to build a picture, start to uh, gain more understanding of how that person's mind works, and then we need to tailor, tailor our care to that individual.
0: So is there a different, you know, let's say you found out that somebody had a childhood infection would yeah. there be a different apo- approach to treatment or is it not that specific
1: no 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 i don't think it's quite that specific mm-hmm. um but we can for example there have been times where somebody has a very very um problematic illness as a child and then this has led them to develop certain beliefs around healthcare oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um so this is another way in which that can affect their processing. How do we? What are the things that need to potentially be covered covered in their one to one therapy? Um, you know, or if someone has had, let's say, an amazing amount of antibiotics as a child, and then they develop an infection whilst they're here, how do we, on a medical level, have to approach that? Mm-hmm. Do they have antibiotic resistance? Is there something that works better for this kind of individual? Where do they live now? What are the antibiotic guidelines in the area? Um, there they, are all sorts of things, um, reasons why we get this information, but I, I don't think it's as specific as, okay, sure. this may have led to this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's just, again, something to think about as we then start to pro- um, go through that process of getting yeah. to um, learn more about the individual.
0: I really like that as well, because I'm very much of the opinion that... Um, like for eating disorder recovery don't necessarily need to go back to the root cause because it it Mm. could be so many different things because they're multifactorial so I think the fact that you're taking it into consideration going forward rather than being like okay so they Mm. had that so this is how we then need to talk about it but also I really like how you know you did speak about also, you know, this might have happened, so therefore that might need to be taken to one-to-one therapy. But equally, mm-hmm. like, the approach that you seem to have is it's not just, um, yeah. like, a psychological thing. There's so many biological concepts going on as well, which mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. definitely is something that we're learning more about, but definitely is, you know, the, the information kind of with regards to the biological process in the body is definitely less than yeah. maybe the psychological.
1: Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And that's it. Um, it, I I like the word you use, multifactorial, and that is very much that. There's more than, there's a a whole host of of, uh, different things. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's the eating disorders team's job. Um, It's that old school thing of you see an elephant and you're standing around the elephant and someone's seeing the face, someone's seeing the legs, Mm -hmm. someone's seeing the tail, Everyone has different perspectives of this one thing, which is the same thing. And it's up to us. This is why it's so MDT in this particular field of eating disorders. I think a multidisciplinary team approach is more, I mean, I can't think of, I mean, I've worked in healthcare for a while now. I can't think of many sectors um, or specialties that require it as much as Mm. this um but again i probably would say that cuz cuz i've worked in this field
0: <laughs> your bias yeah. um something else and i guess it ties into the the biological concepts but i don't know whether this is me being cuz i did biomed at uni so maybe it's just me oh, being a wow. biomed Brilliant. nerd but i <laughs> want to know like that you know you said that you did your talks and they were half an hour long so sorry if I'm making you really, really shorten things down, but yes. the impact on the skin, the hair, the yeah. nervous system, like
1: I yeah, want to know. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, wow. Hair, big hair, <laughs> hair. Yeah. Well, here's, so here's the thing. So hair is, um, I told them I was just out off the bat. I told them hair is partly genetic. Um, um, so hair is also very much nutritional also vitally hair the life cycle of a hair cell means that your hair will only reveal your status in three to four months time so wow yeah people get very frustrated about oh my hair's falling out I've been eating well or been recovering for but the whole point is it might be actually sharing information about how you were three to four months ago so you have to stay with the process Mm -hmm. Um, People love to, people spend thousands of pounds on hair products. They're probably working. You just need to give them some time because the reality is there is a life cycle of a a hair cell, much like the skin. There's a life cycle of a skin cell, you know, the natural um, sebum, the oil, which runs on the, on the skin, Um, you know, those glands don't work as well when people are malnourished. So you don't get that, which is why you get that incredibly dry skin. So if you're changing, and these products that you use go between the, you know, I mean, the skin has three layers. Technically, it has seven layers altogether when you when you split them all up. But you know, it's so complicated. So um, yeah, we touched on a few of these things, just to you know how, um, uh, you know, just how products in general you have to stay with them because ultimately they probably are working and um but but you know you have to give it some time also nutrition you know i told them i was honest i was like guys the reality is you know malnourishment uh, means the body goes into survival mode you know it's not it's not you're not going to get the same amount of sleep in the same way you know your thyroid gland which processes um energy you know you know is going to go into slow mode. You know, there are reasons why your bowels aren't working as well as they probably are, as should be. It's because again, it's slowed down. Everything's just, the processes are slowing in order to keep you alive. So, um, this, this these talks normally kind of focus around anorexia nervosa, as you can imagine, because that's tends to be the majority of our inpatient, um, caseload um but but yeah we cover all of them from you know dehydration secondary to bulimic um behaviors um and and a whole whole, whole host of other things you know we talk about overeating in binge eating uh, disorder which is you know really massively affects our sleep um and yeah so (laughs) we we cover it all
0: i've got a question and feel a bit awkward not awkward but um, I guess it's just it's a question that's a bit what's the word controversial not controversial it's not yeah. controversial but whatever yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's what. Fire away <laughs> what go- goodness <laughs> <laughs> you were talking earlier about um, when you were talking about the admissions and stuff like that and yeah. you just mentioned there again most people that come on to your ward are people that are struggling with anorexia yeah so I guess my question is how do you you know it sounds like you've been super busy how do you prioritize people is it purely based on weight or you know do you look at a range of things um yeah
1: so um this this on a side note this isn't actually how we prioritize people but this is generally personally what I've experienced I've actually experienced that when you have a nice mix of patients on the ward in terms of age, in terms of BMI, in terms of, um, you know, comorbidities. I think actually all the patients benefit, interestingly mm-hmm. enough. In fact, even if you have patients which, um, you know, or wards, sorry, that um, admit males, you know, I think in general that there is a, I think everyone benefits. Um, so that's, that's a side note. How we actually do it in um, our hospital here is we're very, we're very careful. So firstly, we get so many referrals every day. So we have to be incredibly um, strict, if that makes sense, or we have to be quite um, strategic in how we do it. Um, but ultimately, like I said earlier, it comes down to do we have the capacity to be able to deliver optimal care for this patient. So we have to look at the caseload at the moment and we feel like, okay, does this, can this work in given the situation? Can this patient's care be um, delivered well enough? Um, So we take into consideration the patient's history. Um, We take into consideration their um, physical health status. Um, We take into consideration uh, comorbidities amongst other things um, and so it's not just their physical health status it's not just the BMI people think oh it's just a we just take the ones with the lowest BMI absolutely not actually definitely not so um, it, it's definitely not a race to. because yeah it, I know some places may do it like that and I heard some places might do it like that but I'm, I'm, fortunately um, we don't do it that way because actually we know that someone might be a lower BMI and technically not be as critical as someone who, on paper, is a much higher, you know, if you almost, almost healthy BMI. Um, but actually their behaviours and their rate of weight loss might be far, far greater. So, yeah, it's a variety of things. I guess there's no easy way to answer that question.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's not an easy conversation to have and it's not an easy yeah. answer, but it's so refreshing to hear you say that because I think I think it's difficult, isn't it? Because there is a big rhetoric at the moment and there's a lot of anger around the fact that you seem to, you know, have to be at a certain BMI in order to receive treatment, Um, but you know, it's really refreshing to hear that that's not how you do Mm. it. But equally, I think we do, you know, i think it's difficult because i used to think in my head well you know the people with the low bmis probably have the higher comorbidities and the physical health you know the the electrolytes and all of that but then now Mm. doing this podcast i've spoken to a lot of people that are at a higher bmi and have still experienced things like heart conditions and all of that
1: yeah
0: yeah absolutely it's it's really really difficult yeah it's complicated Going through, you know, when you have so many referrals, you want to help everyone. You don't want to say yeah, you're yeah. going to have to go on a waiting list.
1: Yeah, it is really difficult. I mean, one thing that you you quickly learn when you're in the world of eating disorders is actually it's a very small um, world. <laughs> so fortunately, so I actually spoke to um, a colleague who works at the a previous hospital I worked at, and it's nice because you're able to say, "Oh, do you have a bed for this person? It'd be great mm. for you." You know, you have this, so you 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 get to understand. The, um, the, envir- the environment of particular hospitals, geography is so important. You know, a patient's traveling so far for mm. care, so challenging for them. You know, I always, take, I always tell my patients like massive respect. Like you guys have, you've put in the work to get here. You know, uh, you know, it's, you know you, it's one of the hardest things that you're, you're having to do. Um, you're completely destabilizing a system. Um, but hopefully it comes across as in the long term as, as as a good investment. Mm. Um, but being away that far away from home, remember a lot of our patients are very young. Some of them actually transfer straight from CAMS, um, right. you know, and uh, it's difficult. It's difficult. But um, that's why we have such fantastic occupational therapy teams and just general like, nursing staff. They really try and make the patient stay as... As, as um relaxed as it possibly can be
0: yeah guys I can imagine um I don't know I've always thought that inpatient treatment would be quite difficult in terms of normal life because it isn't a normal life so I guess having that you know that work with the occupational therapist is vital for yeah. sort of trying to normalize things as much as possible
1: yeah yeah and I think occupational therapy is I, I don't really, uh, it's absolutely invaluable.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely invaluable. You know, they their job is to make the transition because it defeats the point of doing all this good work in hospital is if, if the yeah. transition isn't right, you know, what job are they going into? You know, what are their finances like outside of here? What are their hobbies and interests? How can we translate that? from inpatient to outpatient like you're saying that's not real life essentially to real life which is why going back to the COVID-19 pandemic it was such a, a, a devastating period of time because we weren't able to do home leave in the same way we normally do we weren't able to Mm. send people home for a couple of nights to test and then come back and then three nights and then come back and then you know we don't we're not giving them opportunities to to essentially fail which is great it's part part of the process we tell them if you go home it doesn't work out brilliant you come back we assess reassess how can we make this um that when you actually finally do get discharged um that you have a likely a good likelihood of success so, yeah, it, it's um, that's part of the occupational therapy. Well, all of our job, I guess, and social work do a great um, job as part of that. But but um yeah.
0: <laughs> so just tying into, I guess, that quote unquote normal life stuff, I wanted to ask you about exercise because um, I think there's I think there's a bit of a split down the middle of whether during eating disorder recovery exercise should be in- you know, should be engaged in. And I think, I think on the independent level, if somebody is in a critical condition where they can't exercise,
1: yeah,
0: then, you know, shouldn't be exercising. But in terms of um, if somebody's at a healthy weight, I'm just speaking anecdotally here, but when I had an eating disorder exercise was just ripped from my grasp. It was, you're absolutely not doing that. So Mm -hmm. even now I don't really have a good relationship with exercise because yeah. I see it as something that was taken away from me, so I've got to claw onto that, and I wasn't able to explore my dependency on exercise. Yeah. So, what do you think?
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> good question. Actually, exercise is a very interesting one, mm. um, and there's some fantastic new uh, work on it in the field. Exercise. There are different schools of thought. Some people think actually if someone's a prolific exerciser outside, if you strip it away, you know, it's meaningless. It's pointless because they're going to go back into the community and re-engage to those levels, actually potentially at higher levels because mm-hmm. it's been um you know, they've been deprived of it for so long. There's another school of thought where actually the longer you keep them off the exercise and you and you um you keep them off of it, they actually lose interest in the exercise, as it were, Um, and they actually realise that life is possible without engaging in that amount of exercise. Uh, I think, obviously, everyone can have their own ideas. Um, We kind of in this hospital, um, we work kind of somewhere in the middle. We actually say when someone's coming in in critical, you know, some people very, very unwell, we're, we're not going to endorse exercise of any kind, um, you know, because actually it can, you know, you're talking about people coming in with such high creatinine um, kinase levels anyway, you know, for them to go, go to even higher, you're talking about people who are dehydrated and all these sorts of things that come with coming in a, a, a way which isn't necessarily at their optimum health. Mm. Um, Then... As is recommended by the, I don't know if you've heard of it, the safe um, at every safe exercise at every stage guidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, we incorporate exercise at the right time based on the individual, starting with very low level exercise. So here we like to, and you know, take them out swimming. They go swimming. Um, you know, table tennis. Uh, we talk about you know jogging necessary when they get to a certain level and then gradually ramping up the exercise um, because I think that's important I think it's important for us to encourage them to go on walks with their families when they go on home leave if that's something they enjoy doing and uh, because again on discharge this is what they're going to be doing anyway one thing though that I thought I should mention as an, as an aside um, to your question is the knowledge behind over exercise that is something we don't do well enough and mm. um, I'm currently working with one of my, my colleagues and we're actually coming up with a way of e- educating um, individuals who suffer with overexercise about what actually happens to their body because it's very interesting very mm. very interesting how people have a very a lot of misconceptions around exercise um, and actually, there's a CBT model. I don't know if you've heard of it by LEAP, it's called LEAP. It was done by yes, the Loughborough. At Loughborough. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Loughborough. So, they, um, um, that's a CBT, CBT approach, but it's, it's mm-hmm. not very medical. It's a fantastic model, but it doesn't actually give them the scientific um, consequences of overexercising, sure. if that makes sense. So, I think if people actually learn this stuff, and we know knowledge doesn't change behavior completely, but knowledge does help. And I think that lack of knowledge, for example, one of my patients in the past thought that um, she, she's more likely to get abdominal muscles if there's less there. But actually the whole point is you need good nutrition in order for your abdominal muscles to be more pronounced. Mm-hmm. So that so then she changed her behavior and actually this helped in the long run. So it's wow. small bits of information like this, which actually, and then if you extend that across all the different body systems, we actually find that um, patients who do over exercise, if you take a measured approach and you educate, can actually do a lot a lot better.
0: Mm. Would you mind explaining some of some of the consequences of excessive exercise if people are listening? Because I can imagine if I was listening to this, I'd be like, tell me what they are.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I I promise you now, I, so I basically I meet up with my friend once a week and we're going through every body system, exercise to wow. over exercise is the the consequent. Obviously, we're trying to make it as lay as possible, but the consequences mm-hmm. are, are are quite um, pronounced and yeah. widespread. So I couldn't even possibly go into all the body systems we talk about from the heart being overactive to start you know underperforming. You're talking t- about the the wear and tear on the musculoskeletal system. You know what it actually does to the um, to the joints. Uh, we talk about the nervous system and how people, you know, if they exercise, they won't even realize there's there's pain. It affects your pain um, threshold. You know, it t- there's all sorts of things. So, um, yeah, I could go into it, but to be frank, I don't think we have the time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well maybe we could do another one we'll do another episode yeah. on the medical consequences um <laughs> I wanted to ask you as well you spoke about how you communicate with the GPs I'm getting yeah. that was when you're talking about discharge yeah and I guess I sort of wanted to ask you you know your your role is you're a specialist in eating disorder so you know a lot I think there's a bit of a frustration that GPs maybe don't know as much as people would like them to. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know. My opinion of all of this has changed quite a lot of over doing mm. the podcast. In that, you know, it's so it must be so difficult because you have to know mm-hmm. so much about everything. You can't mm-hmm. have your brain filled with everything. Yeah. But I guess how do you think we create an environment where GPs do know more about eating disorders so that people can go and get the right referral rather than being turned away, which seems quite common at the moment.
1: So firstly, just to advocate for the GPs. Yeah, I don't I'm, think I'm, it's I'm just trying to too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I can hear by the way you're saying it, that you actually realise that GPs have a really challenging kind of situation and, um, and I know how it works. They don't want to necessarily refer everyone who comes across and there are other approaches. It doesn't necessarily mean a referral depending on the presentation. Gone are the days where people knew families, uh, the GP knew a lot more about the family processes and and the family a bit more. That would have massively helped. Well, unfortunately we don't work in um, a world like that now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just a GP thing, unfortunately. It's also like, for example, an A&E thing. And it's widespread. You. Yeah, medics. I mean, I talk to my colleagues and talk to my medic colleagues and there's still so many misconceptions about what denotes someone who's actually unwell with an eating disorder and how to process it. There's a lack of information. Eating disorders patients are, are notoriously slippery. They slip through the cracks. They, you know, they kind of, you know, they're too physically unwell for a mental health hospital too physically too mentally unwell for a physical hospital and there's just it's very challenging and in the community they can just based on a lot of the time uh, there's still good cognition in this mm-hmm. in the extent that there's you know they can still be performing at an academically high level you know um, they're still they're able to um, talk their, their way to a position where you actually take their severe symptoms Um, as less severe Mm. Um, you know you're treating something that is actually very severe uh, and 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 you know unless you're in this field you guess it's quite easy to be swayed by it Um, I think education is critical I really do Mm. I think firstly foundation I think and I'm actually writing a piece about this at the moment I think it goes at the very 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 beginning I actually think at school There's Mm -hmm. not enough education about eating disorders. I think colleagues, not colleagues, um, pupil students should be able to see red flags in their peers. Right now, I mean, I look back, (laughs) and there have been some extraordinary cases of me missing um, blind. You know, it's so obvious. But at the time, I had no idea. And I was in an environment where you would have thought I would have been able to pick it up. Um, It's at medical school, going on later on at medical school. I mean, we barely get any teaching on eating disorders at all. I mean, I can't actually remember having more than just like a lecture on it. And it's quite extraordinary based on um, when, when considered the extent to which it is prevalent in our society. You know, you're talking about over a million you know, nearly a million and a half people suffering with eating disorders, and yet there doesn't seem to be the the knowledge. And don't get me wrong, medics understand this. So if you go to General Medical Hospital, they know that a low uh, this amount of nutrition means this, or this uh, slow heart rate means that. But that joined up understanding of of refeeding, even the process mm-hmm. of refeeding, interestingly enough, was one of our patients in the past who we had to get them back to our our we actually sent them into general medical hospital to because they were being really unwell. Like I said earlier, sometimes they get quite unwell, they go across. And it was like a holiday for the patient a holiday. They couldn't keep an eye, they, they just couldn't um, manage this patient. And we had to just basically say, you know what, can we please bring this patient back quickly because their nutrition. Is their therapy, that's what they need and they're just not getting it to the same extent. So it's very challenging. So I think, going back to your question, I think GPs do need more education. I think we need education from the bottom up but I don't even think it's just GPs. I think it's all the way across, um, uh, you know, medics in general who aren't in the the arena of eating disorders and um, Yeah, I hope that I really do hope that changes, And I think that's kind of one of the things I'm passionate about, you know, education of certain um, areas of eating disorders that you wouldn't necessarily associate with and also just education in general around it. So I like to be really transparent, very open, very relaxed Mm -hmm. with talking about these things because they are serious topics. But I think we with good education, we can hopefully get somewhere.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually, my dissertation when I did my masters was to produce a um, like a training manual, workshop thing for pediatric nurses because when children come in onto a pediatric ward, they've got no idea, you know, like you said about refeeding, anything, yeah, like all yeah. the different um, behaviors that someone with an eating disorder might present. Yeah. You know, having to go to the yeah. toilet with somebody and making sure what they're doing. <laughs> if you don't Amazing. know that. Yeah. How would
1: you know? That um, that sounds like a fantastic manual, by the way, Hannah. That sounds like really <laughs>
0: <yeah. laughs> I'm necessary. On you know, it out there.
1: Yeah, please do. Oh my goodness, that sounds absolutely brilliant. Because you think about these are highly trained nurses, highly mm-hmm. trained. But yet they're very fundamentals. Yeah. You know, and and unfortunately, eating the sort of to we seem to be there seems to be a trend. I actually seeing a lot more of it. Obviously, post-COVID, I've told you, mm-hmm. you talk about the world of of, uh, you know, around us, which doesn't really make the environment, it's almost the the perfect um, conditions for of to thrive. So um, this is what we're dealing with here. So yeah, brilliant. That sounds like a great manual. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) I guess my question, in an ideal world, let's say we're in a dream situation here. Yeah. I think talking about education absolutely fantastic but Hmm. how how do you think in a dream world we would respond because with the current finances places in beds and everything that we've got yeah if every doctor knew how to recognize an eating disorder well that'd be fantastic it's then like the next step that it doesn't quite seem
1: yeah yeah um (laughs) in an ideal world if wishes were horses (laughs) look early early that's 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 just early everything Mm. earlier you know everything is better earlier you know if you're able to catch these things early you know prevention is better than the cure um i'm sure you've heard of the freed model you know the 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 first Mm -hmm. first presentation this is kind of you being able to um capture some of these behaviors before they're thoroughly embedded Mm -hmm. and i think like i mentioned education um i actually think we should awareness is is an important thing so for example like i said earlier i'm interested in eating disorders in areas that aren't necessarily so for example in the black race yeah
0: um
1: just Picking it up, you know, again, it links back to the early thing. If you pick it up early, you know, it's not a thing right now. in the. I know like, I don't know how many people in the field you've spoken to that are black. I know you spoke to Keisha Thomas. She, put, uh, she probably spoke about um, some of these things. But. The awareness in the black community about eating disorders is, is just so poor mm. um, and people are suffering in silence, which is my biggest concern. People are actually suffering in silence. Um, so in an ideal world, I'd say we'll catch it early, which that in itself is a complicated thing. <laughs> but you'd have to get the bright, bright minds around a round table. You know, you've got the right people in a round table. And actually you you not just have um, lots of, of um, tea and coffee, but actually you focus and you get through some good quality content, you have to involve the communities, you have inpatient, outpatient teams. Um, and obviously I'm I'm acutely aware that there are some people who have been in this space for such a long time and they have some incredible ideas. I think the NHS as as an as a machine can be quite sluggish and slow. Mm-hmm. If you wanna change operations, um, things can take ages, but I know you have amazing people like Agnes Ayton who are taking the lead on some of these processes, and I think they are aware of some of these challenges. Mm. Um, uh, but yeah, in an ideal world, kind of early, <laughs> early picking everything up earlier. Because, but this doesn't mean that if someone gets picked up later, that all is lost, all hope is mm. lost. Um, because in an ideal world, you would want more therapists available, you would want more um, more inpatient units available. You know, currently we're discharging people who, in my head, I feel like, oh, my goodness, if only you can spend another six months Mm. in not necessarily a hospital. We don't want any institutionalization, but we want you in a place where you can get support on how to live your life. Um, And so you can actually very slow transition out. Let's get some of these behaviors, correct behaviors, um, deeply embedded into the psyche. You know, to actually, it can again increase your chances of a proper recovery. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, we're having to discharge um, people who, who just because, like we say, the numbers—it's just not fair, really, on yeah. people who are really, really struggling in the community and require a bed. So we just kind of like um, do our best we can and then send them on their way. But again, with a good community follow-up, hopefully. Yes again community follow-up is very much a postcode lottery some place some people live in fantastic neighborhoods with fantastic care some people the community services are so stretched and they don't get the funding, mm. and the amazing community workers are just absolutely run ragged yeah. um, and then ultimately the victims are the patients so um so, yeah, more money and picking things up early. that's probably my yeah long long answer to your quite <laughs> short question
0: no, I think I think you I mean it was the biggest question I could possibly ask, I think of in <laughs> an ideal world, how would we treat eating disorders um <laughs> but I think you're completely right, and I think, um, my kind of thought about it is just making sure that people you know, if they come into inpatient or if they have daycare or whatever they're doing. The mm. next step is in place for them because I think you know through this podcast I've heard a lot of people you know they might have been an in- inpatient and they leave and yeah. there's nothing for six months which
1: wow well, wow well. you
0: know you're you're not or oh, however long you're not yeah. you're not fully recovered when you leave inpatient yeah yeah so you do need to have that sort of stepped approach down into the community which again is, is like everything it's easier said than done because of the because of the resources.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. Resources vital, absolutely um critical. Mm. And um again, with this COVID nineteen pandemic, a lot of the resources were you had a lot of staff who actually pulled out because they were yeah.
0: uncomfortable
1: yeah. in being in a space that potentially there could be more COVID nineteen around. Mm. So then we had massive different staff and things were stretched even more. So it made a, a, a bad situation even worse.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, that has been fantastic. We covered so much that I didn't even know we were going to cover which was so exciting. <laughs> um, yeah. I've got a, I mean I'm going to say new but because but it's not actually going to be new now when I release this podcast. But a, a different or an exciting element mm. to the podcast where basically um like last week or two weeks ago I reached out yeah. to the community and asked them what questions do you want to ask sweet, um, sweet. which is very exciting for me because it's not just what I want to know from you yeah, um, yeah, yeah. so I said yeah. to the community what would you want to know from a specialist eating disorder doctor yeah so would you have not turned me away if I weighed less
1: yeah. So here's the thing. GPs will turn people away if they weigh more. This is just, this is just the unfortunate reality. Again, education, 100%, mm-hmm. you know, chance of, uh, well, not obviously 100%, but it's very, very likely that if someone is, weighs, uh, you know, is within what we would put, you know, places like a, let's say a healthy BMI, you uh, they are likely to be turned away. They're likely to be turned away. Come back later, you know, process things somehow. You know, sometimes they might put them through to, um, we've seen it in the past, where we put them through to um, um, put it down as, you know, something that will just pass. You know, the people who are less familiar with eating disorders, you know, and they've eventually regretted it, you know, processing things that way. But the unfortunate truth is people do tend to, because you have to remember, Hannah, it's a very medical thing. You know, what's the criteria for, um, let's say, anorexia? And, you you know, very, you know, this is what they taught us in medical school. You have the criteria, you have the BMI, you have the physical things, you have the, you know, they have their periods, this and that. And then as part of it, you, you think, okay, what's their, you know, thoughts about their body and their kind of attitude towards weight restoration and, and weight loss so it's all part of a package and and you know it's an objective thing isn't it you can't say oh no you weigh less you weigh more it's very objective it's quick I think it's quick like I say mm-hmm. GPs don't have time they have a look at the number and and um, and they, they think that there's there's not much of an issue there don't get me wrong there's lots of GPs extraordinary ones who and I, and by the way you can still be an extraordinary GP and turn someone away with it. Just Mm -hmm. the reality is they just, it's in this particular area, there's either lack of knowledge, there's lack of time. I don't know what it is, but um, there do seem to be a lot of people that feel failed by the, the GP.
0: I have to say, um, I'm so glad, so, so glad you said mm. about like fitting a criteria and that's, it's almost like a medical mindset. Um, yeah, and yeah. definitely through my experience of working in eating disorders, I think mm. I've recognized that um, some people do have such a medical approach and it's like, well, what are mm. their, mm-hmm. you know, what are their electrolytes like? What are their bloods like? Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And yeah. I'm sat there with personal experience, like but that's not the be all and end all, but mm, to mm, mm, somebody that has worked as a doctor, yeah. the medical stabilization is, it's yeah. is, is their most important thing.
1: Well, this is the thing with even a you know, multidisciplinary team. So, you know, I always talk to my psychologists and, I, and, you know, they spend hours with this patient really drilling down into some, some things the patient didn't even know they needed to cover and uncover and unwrap and, and, you know, really explore. And then from my perspective, I'm very much you know, analyzing their bloods and this and that. So, you know, multidisciplinary team is a value, It's so vital because you yeah. then come in to a meeting, you know, with all this different information and then you're able to realize, okay, so this patient's BMI is okay. Are they fit for discharge? No, they're not because, you know, Because there's actually a lot more work they have to do. There's a lot more that, you know, psychology, there's a lot more um, thinking that needs to happen and exploration in this space. There's a lot more education of their support network. You know, often the support network is the source of the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so, yeah, we try and tackle as much as we can and we try and stay away from the medical model. But like you say, uh, it wouldn't be unusual of a medic to focus on the uh, on the medical stuff
0: yeah when that's what they've been trained i guess the follow-on question from that is you know if that is kind of the way that it is if someone yeah. is in a situation where they know that they need support but they're not presenting with those medical markers what what should they do in terms of going to their gp
1: yeah this is a difficult one this is a difficult one and actually one that i get asked i've been asked quite quite a lot recently um you have people who are stuck in the community. They know they need help. They are doing what we did said earlier. You know, they're coming early. They're presenting early. That's absolutely exactly what we want from them to present early before things get a lot worse. But yeah, they get turned away. And it's kind of like, what do you want me to do? Just like keep losing weight in the community until I come in critical. Yeah. Um, I I don't really have the answer to that, to be honest. Um, and there have been some... I, I, I must confess that I think it's very much area, de- as probably area dependent. Um, if you have some very, very um, experienced community workers or experienced GPs, they might, or not even just that, if there happens to be a bit of fortune and there's a bed available at the right time, then actually, or, you know, or the community team has a lighter caseload, case there's all sorts of different things, I guess. Then you might actually be able to get, in I I look I would recommend just sticking at it, keep putting applying pressure. You know, unfortunately a lot of the time it requires the parents or the support network to just be shouting and shouting and shouting. And they can come across as a bit um irritating. Um but but you know, yeah, this is how they're unfortunate this is the unfortunate truth, you know, in the community that this is the way they're perceived, you know, wrongly so, because all they they just care about their loved one. But it's almost as if you know, the more noise you make, the more you're heard. Type thing, which it shouldn't be that way. No, um, but yeah, just keep persevering. Um, I mean, eventually, care will be 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 you. You care. You will find care, especially in the in the Uni- United Kingdom. I think, I think out at different countries, you know, I've, I've heard things operate a bit differently. But yeah, yeah, this is kind of a sad response to your question because you know there, there isn't any you know some people have had to contact their MPs mm-hmm. you know you know have gone to, to extreme lengths to just make it clear that I am struggling here I'm literally struggling and no one seems to be listening to me um, yeah but the, the problem is uh, we work so someone such as myself I work in a tier four service it's very hard to ex- access there's so many mm-hmm hoops you have to get through to get there um, and it can feel like painstaking for the patient and other people involved.
0: Yeah and and that was the other question was how bad do I have to get before I'm going to get help and I think you awfully have just summed it up in that there are so many hoops that you have to jump through mm-hmm. but I guess kind of what I want to say before just before you respond to that question is I think the fact that you're listening to this podcast you're aware there is a problem and even if it's just speaking to a loved one or Mm. somebody Mm. that you're close to if they can provide you support in any way do that and then just like you said continue to go to the doctors and have that support with you
1: yeah yeah I think it's yeah yeah, it's, it's so I really love that. I love I love the way you phrased it. Just, you know, it, support doesn't... The, the support is not just a doctor or just in inpatient care. You know, there are all sorts of different support groups and there's family and there's, you know, friends. There are people who you may trust and love and, you know, who, who may be able to provide something in the interim. I don't know what it is, but something... Mm-hmm you know um that might be what you need at that moment to get through um and but you know just hold hold on and don't lose hope you know this is something that i try and again i try and mention my patient to my patients you know hope isn't lost just because the way um things have been a certain way it doesn't mean that that's the way things have to be in the future you know um and and yeah just 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 keep going
0: yeah I love that that hope is not lost because it isn't um thank you so much for that I could feel myself getting really irate at the end um (laughs) getting really passionate (laughs) so I I really love that conversation with you so thank you so much for coming thank you
1: so much Hannah thanks for having me (laughs)
0: I really enjoyed speaking to Chucks today and I think it was invaluable to be able to get the insight of a doctor that works in eating disorders but also understands the nuances of why it's so difficult to get people in for treatment and I think speaking about this more openly is really important to bridge that gap between the frustration of when people don't get the support that they need but also how can we increase that support. Next week, we'll be joined by Han Lewis, who is a PhD student looking at the body project. With Han, we talk about body image, body dysmorphic disorder, and her body project that she's working on in order to reduce body image concerns and hopefully contribute to the prevention of eating disorders.
1: Okay, in an ideal world, like, yeah, it would be that we tackle this one thing, we increase awareness, we impart tools on young people to manage it, and, like and that would be it. But I think realistically, like acknowledging the complexity of eating disorders, all of them, you know, not just anorexia or bulimia, but binge eating disorder and OSBED and all your atypicals, which are a little bit of nonsense, I think, if you don't mind me saying it, <laughs> sort of feel by like weight stigma and things like that, you know. Yikes, we just live in this world where we're, we're going to tie a little bit, aren't we? Like, even if someone, had all these tools to develop a perfect body image, I think there are still many other risks that could, unfortunately, um, provoke dis- disordered eating and potentially a eating disorder as well.
0: If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode but if you require more support right now please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.